Hello and welcome back to Join the Conversation. I'm George Christopher Thomas, your radio talk show host and podcaster, and we are broadcasting and coming at you from the University of Alaska Fairbanks in College, Alaska. So now I invite you to sit back and enjoy this next interview on 91.5 FM KSUA, and thanks for listening. What is this show, Join the Conversation, you ask? Well, in this era of fake news and neo-yellow journalism, this podcast focuses on using academic insight and peer-reviewed understandings to get the real story out there. By basing the conversation in a college atmosphere, the focus is a combination of learning and accuracy that lays down the foundation for comprehending complex issues and concepts. Our host, which is me, invites you to join the conversation by listening as we bring in a cadre of guests from all over America and the world. This idea of peer-reviewed academia meeting media in real time is the newest concept in journalism. So on with the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary earthlings, all our listeners out there, thank you once again for joining us on KSUA 91.5 FM, our college radio station here at UAF at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. We have a very special guest with us today, uh, professor here at the school, Dr. Uma Bahat, and uh, Dr. Bahat uh, went to school and got a BA in mechanical engineering, but um, has a, an extensive background in climate change, science, and the like. So, uh, doctor, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And please call me Uma. Okay. Well, that, that yes, Uma. So, just looking at your CV, at your, uh, at your resume, you were in the Peace Corps. And uh, you were out teaching math in Kenya. Um, my wife used to live in Mombasa, and I've been out to Kenya. My best friend growing up, uh, Nurpal, uh, was born in Kenya. Um, his family was originally from India, um, but uh, his grandfather helped build the railroads out there. So Jambo, Namanagani, uh, Habari. Um, it's a... What I find fascinating about Kenya, and if you, uh, if you go back to just the history of humans, every single person on this planet is related to one person from Kenya. So truly, we're all cousins, truly, we're all related, and truly, we're all Kenyan. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm not that good at long distance running, so I don't know where uh, it, it went off somewhere, but... Uh, no, it's absolutely uh, great to, to have you on the show, and it's really cool your background in Kenya. But you got your graduate degree in atmospheric science, and uh, you study chemistry and the physics of the Earth systems. So just for a layman, because we're wrapping up this uh, series of podcasts on climate change, there's too much the CO2 in the uh, atmosphere, pretty much. So... Um we need some greenhouse gases in the atmosphere because if we had none, we wouldn't have a, a livable planet, but we can't have too much. And what's happened is over 
the last 150 years and, and even longer, humans have put a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere and that has changed the amount of heat that gets trapped. Basically, it, it, it acts as a blanket. So you need a blanket that's just thick enough, just not too thick. And so what's happened is we've made our blanket too thick and there's too much um, being trapped in our atmosphere and that has warmed up our climate. And we see many, many impacts globally of that, when particularly in Alaska and the Arctic. And does that come from the Industrial Revolution? I mean, it just seems like that is the one time, the one sticking point in time that it started switching over in the, the Anthropocene. It is, that is when we've added the most, that the change has been the quickest. But if you go back in history, it's really interesting. People would argue that when humans became agrarians, they started adding methane in the atmosphere. And that's a very potent greenhouse gas. So paleoclimate studies show that we were impacting the climate when we started cutting down forests and making, um, making agricultural land. It's just, we, there weren't as many humans on the planet and we weren't, it wasn't as um, intense as uh, industrialization has been for putting in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And now we all drive cars that it just, it's, it's, it's exploded. But why isn't that part of the narrative? I mean, if the, the whole thing seems to be like Republican versus Democrat, you're either a oil and gas person or you're a tree hugging enviro person. I mean, the, the fact that a, the agriculture and just, you know, becoming more civilized humans, instead of playing the blame game, we should be looking at solutions. I mean, you, you hardly ever hear that agriculture is part of it. Um, yes, we need to focus on solutions and we need to be able to talk to each other across our divides. And I, I see that as one of the biggest problems right now of solving our global problems. People are so divided. And I think it comes down to, we need to have some common truth, right? If people can make up any truth, they can, they can manipulate uh, large segments of the population, you know, either way, potentially. But we see what's happening all over the world right now that people are not getting proper information. For example, citizens of Russia are not understanding exactly what their country's doing. And I think if they did understand the truth, they might feel differently. They might not support what's going on. So we, we need to figure out how to, um, how to have a more absolute truth. Every, it, it's, it's, so looking at that, uh, you know, there's uh, those that would say that the, it's just another war over oil, and uh, that's what it's always been, is uh, these countries fighting over this oil, this natural resource. When do we as a society, as a world society, start transitioning to green energy and renewable energy and then have wars over that. I mean, we need new wars. We need something new to fight over, right? I mean, it, it that's where we need to go is to stop burning fossil fuels, essentially. And and I think and people are right. We've we people have really come up with many innovations, and there's many many people globally working on solutions to climate change. And and I think it's it's growing, but it's it's something that doesn't happen quickly, right? It's much quicker to destroy something than it is to build it. 
And so I, 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 it's the we got to, we got to, um, we've, we've got to get everybody on board and educate people, but that's this very overly simplified word. No, it's, um, it's, a, it's a tough question. How do you change world society and save humanity from its own uh, destruction? Yes, I, I, that's a tough one to answer, but then you do get into like the holistic thinking for addressing climate change. What, what are the holistic ways to address climate change? Can you talk on Absolutely. that a little bit? Absolutely. I, and I, this is something I'm really excited about because right now we're developing something in, in actually changing graduate education. We're trying to change graduate ed education at UAF by creating something called the Earth System Science Program. And what's, it, what's important for solving the problems of the future and present are you need experts. You need people who have deep knowledge in different disciplines, but you also need them to be able to you know, have read broadly and be able to speak across, you know, as an atmospheric scientist, you need to talk, be able to understand what oceanographers are saying. You may not understand all the details, but you, you know how it connects. And so, you know, some of us who do interdisciplinary research have, have learned that kind of off, I want to say off the cuff, but just by practicing it over the last 30 years. And I, I certainly think my Peace Corps experience was one of the first places where we were taught, you know, when you go into a, a new place, you don't try to do anything. You sit back and you listen, you pay attention and you understand what's going on. And then you think about projects, think about things your community wants. And and it's it's very different than our traditional Western society where we're like, I know what I'm doing and I'm gonna come in and change things, right? You, you, you go, and in this new framework of education, we're all, you, you kind of come in there and admit you're ignorant and you learn. And so I think it totally turns around how kids are educated because you, know, you gotta compete with the other guy and you gotta do the best and outdo other people and keep information to yourself because that's how you will get ahead. And we really have to dispel people of that because when you're working in interdisciplinary collaborative groups, that does not work. The people who do that end up causing a lot of problems and often end up not being included. And I would say most of our students and particularly the students attracted to come to UAF are really, you know, really resonate with doing actionable science. And to do that, you need to be able to work with other people. But, but you know, each person has their own thing. They have, you know, they get credit for what they do, but it, it, there's a lot of social interaction that's very important to do the science properly. And so we're kind of organizing this education and we're still figuring it out and we need to get it approved. But I think it's very exciting because our students need to be educated now. They can't, we can't, they can't just learn it in the next 20 years. It, we need to prepare them better. So I, and it's holistic thinking. So is that the like learning by doing and getting involved where the interdisciplinary um, experience is part of the education or it, it, this is a whole new thing, isn't it? I mean, this is kind of what, like the climate scholar program is not just you know, political people or not just, uh, you know, botanists. It, it, right. It's kind of based on that. Is that a new type of learning? It is. It's not a new type of learning. It's something that certainly has been, um, I, you know, my professors when I was a graduate student at Wisconsin were talking about it in the early 90s. So it's, it's, but it's been, it takes a while to catch on and to get people to do things differently. And there are several very, you know, strong earth system science programs around the U.S., 
So it, I think it's very exciting because that's one of our strengths in Alaska is people, um, we have a lot of ex, deep expertise and these most people work well together. And, and that's how you solve problems. And, it, but you got to check your ego at the door. It's not about you and your glory. And, and those are things that people have to get used to if they've, if they've, you know, kind of been raised in the culture that that's how you get ahead. So it is, it is changing the culture, but, but I don't think it's that hard. I think people get it, the students get it. And there's certainly been a lot of interest. So the University of Alaska Fairbanks, I mean, there's probably no better place in America to study climate change. And, and Arctic climate, yes, absolutely. I mean, there's no, there's no university farther north in America than UAF. But why, you know, just to break it down in like layman's terms, why is the Arctic heating up two or three times faster than let's say Los Angeles or, uh, you know, El Paso, Texas? Like why is the Arctic closer to the sun or what is going on up there? So what, what the, the, there's a variety of reasons, but one of them is this concept of polar amplification. So the sea ice, keeps the Arctic cold. And as soon as the sea ice starts declining in the summer, that sun, which is shining down, isn't reflected anymore. It ends up getting absorbed in the water, right? Water doesn't reflect sun as well as the sea ice does. So now you're heating up the ocean more and that's, that's how you know, the signal gets amplified in the polar regions. So, and, but polar amplification is, is a bit more complicated than just the ice albedo feedback. What also happens is as you warm the whole globe, the tropics get more energetic in terms of convection. And that convection then sends more moisture to the Arctic. And that moisture is essentially another form of heat. And that also heats up the climate. So those are two mechanisms by which our climate in a lot in at, at the higher latitudes is amplified. The signal is amplified when you warm the climate. So does that kind of contribute to the the more extreme weather that, that everyone's going to experience? Like let's say you're in Alabama, your global warming is going to make the hurricanes and the tornadoes more powerful. Is that right? It, it, it's the moisture that's giving us energy, right? When, when water condenses, um, evaporates into the atmosphere, when that water condenses, it releases heat. So water vapor in the atmosphere is another form of energy. And when that water vapor goes to the Arctic, and then um, that, that's bringing energy and that extra energy helps make the climate more vigorous. So then uh, speak a little bit about like a feedback loop. So uh, is there a, are we headed towards like the point of no return? If it's 1.5 degrees Celsius, we get up to two degrees Celsius. Is earth gonna find itself in uh, like a, a, a perpetual motion feedback loop because we have too much CO2 in the atmosphere? I think scientists are still debating that. And the way we're um, studying that is by using climate models. I would say the jury's not out, but it's being discussed. And it's it's certainly a concern. Um, I, I guess I, I need to focus on the more positive things because if we don't focus on the positive things, we'll just give up. And if we give up, then we won't do anything. And so I, I think- No eco grief. It's like a new term, like having the eco-anxiety from studying this issue too much. 
my graduate students have a lot of eco anxiety. They 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 feel very stressed out at times when they. I go running just because of uh, how much uh, I study this issue for these interviews and my other classes with the the climate scholar program, and it, it it's scary. Like when you know, you 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 almost feel like the doom and gloom. Like you're walking around like a like a British person, just like uh, like it's just the end is is soon and. And what do you what do you do to make it not so bad? I mean, are, are you like really into badminton, or you play Tetris on the old Nintendo and not I, think about it? Lately, I don't do too much fun stuff, and I need to do that. I guess uh, the thing I do that relaxes me the most is I walk my dogs outside, and and that is is when I can kind of daydream. But I do need more daydreaming time, Certainly. and I, I I need to find that, but. But you you do have to. I, I guess I read books, novels that are. Uh, I want I want to say light. I tend not to read heavy stuff. But not the climate change romance novels uh, genre, none of that. Or uh... I've I've read some of the science fiction climate change novels, but some of them I haven't gotten that far because they they were a little distressing. Yeah. And, and too real. So yeah. uh, just looking, uh, I you know when I interview professors, uh, I do a Google Scholar search and I look at uh, you know the most cited articles that they've written. And um, your most cited article, uh, it, it's uh, what the um, the variability in trends of air temperature and pressure in the you know the uh, Arctic. How much is the uh, just the air? changing up there. I mean, I know Fairbanks sometimes gets in trouble for having bad air quality. Is that because, it, is it in a valley and it gets trapped? I mean, what what is actually, let's start with Fairbanks. What is happening with the air in Fairbanks? So we, we you know, our population has grown over the years. And what, we, what happens in the wintertime is we have something called temperature inversions. And basically that means we have cold air at the surface because we don't have sunlight. Right? When you get sunlight, sunlight hits the surface of the earth and warms it up. So you get convection. So the air that's close to the surface moves away. And so that keeps the pollution from staying close to the surface. But in the wintertime in Fairbanks, when it's dark, the surface just keeps cooling because the sun, the, the radiation of the earth is, is being emitted. Sorry, I won't go into all that, but the surface of the earth keeps cooling because it's not being offset by the sun. And so we get these temperature inversions, which means the bottom of the surface of the earth is cooler. And as you go up, the temperature increases. And that keeps all that air down at the surface. And when you keep air at the surface, it keeps the pollutants there also. Mm. So that's what's happening. In LA, it's different. LA has, um, what happens is LA has air sinking above it. And that's what's keeping the, the, the boundary layer, the layer closest to the surface um, from convecting and like from that air, that air getting out. And that's why your pollution stays there because you get a lot of sunlight compared to us, but ours is a different reason. So you get that air because it, you get that sinking air because you have this, the, have you heard of the, the Hadley circulation? So it is rising motion in the tropics and then it's sinking in the subtropics. So that's happening all around the globe. So all the regions around the subtropics are sensitive to this sinking air and can get, you know, um, uh, 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 
inversions and pollution that stays close to the surface. Now, does the does the wind always go the same way? I mean, they say you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, but it, it, is it always kind of the same circulation that, on a map? I mean, if you know, it's the arrows it's are not, everywhere. It's not it, it when you look at the winds, you look at it on different time scales. So this is kind of over a season. This is the general shape of what the wind is doing. But on any given day, it's a lot noisier. <laughs> but on average, that that kind of average pattern that happens over and over again does determine your seasonal climate and what would happen. So I did notice a, a fun term in one of uh, the uh, peer-reviewed articles you wrote, uh, anthropogenic forcing. So uh, is that what humans forcing their bad ways on the climate and this is what's happening? So I, I presume you're talking about the, we do the, we write these papers on climate attribution. So we try to say, okay, we see this extreme event that's occurred in the observations. One, we've written a few papers. One was on the fire season um, of 2015. Is this fire season that we got really many acres burnt, is that out of the ordinary? Is that, um, could that only happen if we had put lots of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere? So that's what we're, that's what we mean by the conclusion that, that by, you know, I don't remember the exact percentage, but the, the likelihood of this event happening is much higher. If you include the um, forcing, the anthropogenic forcing due to climate change. And we use climate models for that where we've added the uh, observed anthropogenic climate change to the climate model. And that gives us a picture of what the climate can be like. So that's a kind of looking at it is what you guys call like the multi-decadal climate variability. So like over the decades, say since the industrial revolution to today, Alaska has been warming, period. It's been warming, but multi-decadal variability is something different. So when you look at any sort of climate signal, you'll see waves. It's not just simply, you know, every year it goes up. But so you'll see these ups and downs. So if you look at the, the temperature record from that paper you quoted, variability in trends of air temperature, you'll see that it was warmer in the 30s. Yes, and I saw it was that. Cooler, and it was cooler in the um, 60s, 70s, and then it's been warming since then. So that has to do with what we call multi-decadal variability. And um, there's a lot of debate exactly where it comes from, but we have a strong signal of that variability in the Atlantic Ocean. So if you, we have records over the last 150 years of temperature and there's that, that is variability that's coming from the ocean and people would argue it's coming from this, um, just the low, uh, the slow changes in the ocean circulation. Interesting. So uh, I also saw that you uh, have, or you do teach political science courses in uh, atmospheric science. Uh, my guess is you're working with NASA, NOAA and, and the like. Um, just looking at the politics of climate change and making the, the necessary uh, policy changes that need to happen is the, uh, I mean, I don't know how to phrase this, but is the environmental lobby and the, the, the changes that need to happen, they are not that well organized as compared to say oil and gas. I mean, oil and gas has its hooks 
in society and has since the railroads and uh, and coal. I mean, it goes back to 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 the rail lines. What in the politics of it? What uh, what does the the environmentalists need to do? Just get better organized? I mean, what from what you've seen? So so the class we taught, I actually taught it with somebody who is an expert in marine policy. And we were trying to teach students who do marine, po who do policy, have policy interests and students who have climate interests just to get them together so they can understand each other. That's kind of the first step. Um, I, I guess I, I think, you know, there are many organizations out there that are working on policies, environmental policies, and they're pretty well equipped. I think, um, you know, the students that we're training, most of them are, you know, nowadays it's changing, but most of them end up being researchers. Most of the students who get a PhD or master's do something research related, not, not necessarily master's. Master's students can be forecasters, go, we, and we have students who've gone into wind energy and other such topics. But I think we were just trying to get students to, to you know, bridge that gap between those two groups. Okay, so, so, so I'm, I'm more optimistic about the um, environmental uh, organizations. They're, they don't have as much money necessarily as oil companies. They're not as well entrenched in the whole system, but, but I think they've made inroads and there's, you know, and I think young people are making a difference. Young people need to go out and vote. That's the most important thing. That, you know, that is, things are not going to change if people sit quietly and, and apathetically. And probably there's been a generation or two that we were all comfortable and maybe we were not as active as we should have been. So, the, but just looking at, uh, you know, green energy and solar energy and wind energy, um, the, the politics of it, it it's almost like uh, they hit a, a stone wall just from climate deniers in the, on the Republican side. And, and half of that would be just scientists teaching science. I mean, if, you, if everyone knew what was really happening, we wouldn't have such a dragging your feet to get to where we need to go. So I think, yes, I agree. And I feel that the, the misinformation has really, really grown. And maybe we need to have some policies that are like truth policies that you can't just call anything news and you need to, you need to satisfy some sort of uh, metric of truthiness in order for it to be called news. I, 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 that <laughs> a, would truth, help. a truth policy inside the beltway would put uh, more than one person out of work, but uh, it is uh, the creation of this uh, wind energy and solar energy, it, is it a, a, a political thing that it's hitting or it, we just don't have the technology right now to switch over? I think, um, I think wind and, and solar have really, really expanded. But from talking to my energy experts, I am, I am, I am convinced or told, you know, I'm, I'm my understanding is they can't solve all the problems. We still need some other more technical things to cover the larger part of our energy. That those things can do a certain part, but they can't do everything. And I think, and, and I don't know what that other part will be. You know, ideally it would be something like fusion energy that doesn't, you know, cause radiation issues, but people are pushing, you know, 
uh, nuclear fission. And I'm, there's issues with that, but um, I guess, you know, I, I don't, sorry, I don't have a good solution for- I'm not giving you softballs here. I'm, I'm, I'm asking hard questions and sorry about that doctor, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to pull it out of you. I, I wanna know. I think, um, I do think we, we need to get a group of people that aren't just thinking of their own self-interest to come up with a plan for what is, what is in the best interest of the whole country and of people of all economic groups. And I think when people come to the table, they're often there with their own self-interest. And I don't know how you can change a society to think a little bit differently. I think that is really something that I, I see that every day, even in projects that I'm in. All it takes is one person who's kind of pushing their own self-interest to, to ruin the dynamics. And I, you know, making these big plans for, you know, our energy future, we need to get a bunch of people who, who aren't only there for their self-interest. Or looking to the next and, election, the horizon of the next or election. No, yeah, I think politicians shouldn't be part of this discussion, you know, because, yeah, yeah, don't get me started on that and, and how politics is funded. It's a, I, you know, I used to, when I was younger, I used to feel, oh, it's so great that we don't have the corruption we did 100 years ago when everyone's bribing each other. And I feel very um, much that we've just sanitized our bribery into these other, you know, packs and things. And it's we've made legalized. it legal. It's we've legalized it and that therefore sanitized it. And then, legalized bribery. you know, when money determines everything, that's not always in the best interests of the country. No, it's and, a total bummer. If only the oil and gas industry uh, could switch over to the green and uh, renewable energy and uh, use those tactics for changing the world, then then we would be on the right track. But, you know, if you invest in sustainable companies, like in, in our retirement, we picked all the, the sustainable companies. Those have done really well the last 15 years. So that tells you right there that companies that think about their workers and are sustainable will do better in the long run. And, but people need to understand, understand that. Well, uh, working with people is, is certainly an art form. But yes. uh, going back to the marine policy and uh, a couple of the other articles you've written, um, there was one on the ecological consequences of sea ice decline. And that certainly comes up uh, in political science classes at UAF. Now, the, the sea ice that at the North Pole, the projections are there will not be any by the summer of 2050. Now, what are the implications of that? It's just, it, it's staggering, isn't it? it? It's pretty staggering and I try not to think about it um, because I'm on another project where we're trying to predict seasonal sea ice. And one of our colleagues on that team kind of joked, he goes, well, we better figure it out before it goes away, um, which is just kind of sad. But so we will still have sea ice in the winter time because it, it will be dark and sea ice will grow, but it'll be first year ice, it'll be thin. We won't have the thick, you know, the really thick multi-year ice. And, you know, what the paper that was written, whatever, a decade ago now about consequences. So the, the research that I've spent a lot of time doing is looking at the consequences of the sea ice decline on tundra vegetation. Yeah. Because tundra vegetation is very closely tied and the Arctic is greening because it's warmed up. But 
you know, there's other biological concerns, the animals that den on the sea ice actually have, um, have had much more difficulty because in the fall, that's when they go out and they start denning. And a lot of those animals have like polar bears have been denning on land. And so the consequence, the immediate consequence, so they're adapting, you know, for the most part. And there hasn't been um, the huge extinction that people are, have expected have been talking about. That hasn't happened yet. Animals have adapted. But what's happened is these animals are coming on shore to den and that's causing more interactions with humans. Mm. One, and this change has also impacting people's access to food. There's a lot of subsistence living in the Arctic and because things have warmed up, it's, it's really changed the animals' habits and people's ability to access food. You know, for example, caribou and other animals like that. And I guess the polar bear are also starting to breed with grizzly bears. That so there's a there's some weird things happening. So just uh, speaking to that, I mean, it's not necessarily the tree line is creeping up, but it's the the bush uh, and kind of the vegetation and the grasslands that that's all changing. Uh, like along the Brooks Range, um, like where the tundra is. That's all because of global warming too, is it not? Um, that it, we haven't done an attribution study, but it's very closely tied to warming. Yes, but but there's yes that that is that is the the summary of what um, what is going on. But if you look regionally, there's a lot of variability. There's parts of the Arctic where this vegetation activity doesn't seem to be going up in the last decade. It's going down, and we we're still stumped. We don't know uh, why that's happening. So uh, kind of parlaying that into uh, the permafrost, uh, I know you can't say melting, the permafrost is thawing. And yes. what that is doing is releasing uh, methane from what the little, the little creatures that eat the permafrost now. And that whole thing is just setting off uh, an entire, hopefully not, but a feedback loop of just Yes. And that's a huge problem. I mean, I know professors at UAF whose home is sinking because the permafrost below is melting or thawing. Yes. Rather. thawing. yes. Permafrost thaw is also having an impact on the vegetation. And we think some of the places where we see the decline in vegetation could be that there's um, a thawing of permafrost and sinking of land potentially that there's been some evidence of that but there's different things going on all over the arctic so i can't say it's one thing it's a bunch of different things but permafrost thaw is very important in this story so just uh, let, let's take a look at methane um the if you go and you see ponds and lakes like on the way up to the hot springs say you're, you're at you know two bears recreation uh, center and there's the big lake the bubbles coming up from below are methane bubbles from the from before it, when it was frozen. I mean, what's going on there? Like the the lake doesn't have jets in it. I mean, it's not the height that's broken underneath the water. That's real methane. I'm I'm not an expert on methane, but this is um, respiration that's going on, and that's going on all the time. And I think the researchers who've been working on it have measured that the methane that's being emitted is increasing. So it is already a part of the natural system, but it's changing. Interesting. Okay, so then uh, 
A couple other things, doctor. I do appreciate your time and uh, coming on the show. Um, I saw you wrote about uh, key indicators of uh, Arctic climate change. So let's do the top three. What are the top three indicators that there's something going on up there? Um, oh, that's uh, temperature is number one. Uh, precipitation is another one and sea ice. If I, had to, if I had to quickly spit out three, those are the three that we look at. But I, you know, I, I would be remiss if I wouldn't say the normalized different vegetation index, which is a satellite measure of what's happening to vegetation. And then uh, just looking at when we have been, uh, you know, uh, studying this issue, it goes back to what, 1875 is when the first data set kind of came in? I, I think the first concepts of global warming, the idea was maybe even 1850, the theoretical part. So that people had already started thinking about it, but the first laboratory experiments were done in the 1870s, 1880s. So this is not a new idea. And then there was a gentleman who was an engineer named Callender. I can't remember his first name. He was an engineer and he wrote a bunch of papers and he was the first one to say, we are seeing the impact of the industrial revolution in our data. And he was totally dissed because he wasn't a physicist. And, but you know, he's, he's getting credit you know, many years later. So he was arguing then that we're actually already seeing it. So there, there's, you know, and as people dig through the literature, there's more and more you know, uh, researchers that are revealed, right? You got it. A lot, a lot of what we, you know, sometimes I'll have a great idea. And then when I dig into the literature, somebody actually already had this idea earlier. Maybe they didn't work it out as well as I have, but, you know, you want to give credit or realize that, you know, all of what we do in science builds up on what other people have done and, and giving them credit doesn't take anything away from you as in your contributions. Certainly. And then, uh, just one last question and uh, I'll let you go, but uh, I want to talk about uh, climate variability, where one component of, of a climate system impacts another. So just kind of give us the worst case scenario, like the Arctic is melting, um, in North America, there's going to be more tornadoes, more hurricanes, the world is ending. What's happening in South America? What's the big weather story? I know, no, do this is fun. This is for our science fiction book that we're gonna write together. This isn't what's real, yeah. So uh, what's gonna happen in Africa weather-wise? What's gonna happen in South America? I mean. So I can talk about Africa. I, um, so I became a meteorologist. I went. In, I was studied mechanical engineering because I wanted to be going to solar technology mm -hmm. and I, when I was in Kenya, there was a horrible, horrible drought, the big drought of 83 to 85. It didn't rain for two years. It was actually a life-changing experience for me. And that's when I realized I wanted to study climate and do seasonal forecasting because our students had to pay to go to high school. And a lot of them were farmers and they couldn't pay their school fees. So they come to school for two weeks, they pay a little bit of their fees and then they'd leave. And it was really dis, you know, disruptive to their education. And I just thought, wow. And so this year, I think they've had as bad a drought in Kenya as they did in 83, 85. I heard that from one of some of our students that I keep in touch with. So, you know, I, I think the, the chances of floods and droughts, these big swings in the climate become greater when you have a generally warmer climate. So it's and, more extreme weather, the, 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 yes. weather, the weather pattern that the area normally has, like let's say monsoons in Arizona, those will get more severe. 
They could be stronger or you could have a more, uh, more extended period without rain. I and we are seeing that in the data more and more just globally, that just longer periods of these extreme weathers, uh, weather events. And that just totally disrupts human life, right? We're used to something that's a bit more steady. And when we have more extremes, we, you know, it, there's, there's uh, consequences, you know, it's, it's safety, economics, everything. And is that, could you relate that to like the wildfires in Australasia? Like that is, let's say their top thing? Yes, yes. Extreme, extreme dryness and just the wildfires that have occurred in Russia over the last few summers. They've been pretty, they've burnt huge areas and it's been an extended period of, you know, dry, hot, dry weather. And you, and just in your study of like uh, meteorology and climate change, it, it, it's the, uh, the increase in the severity of this, right? I mean, where I'm at in California, we have wildfires, but now it seems like they're getting worse and then there's more of them. And then for the first time in my life, the uh, we went to like um, Nevada in uh, Colorado and Utah and the local news would have the wildfire smoke report. So yeah. the smoke from California was affecting the air quality in like St. George, Utah. And that, I've never seen that on a weather report where they're uh, reporting on the smoke from like four states away. It's it, it, the, it, because smoke has particles that are particularly dangerous to people's lungs and uh, that impact your lungs because of the size of the particles. They're called PM 2.5. And um, th that's why it, the air quality is, is you need to stay out of the, the, you need to stay indoors when you have bad air quality. Go check your email. But so uh, before the Industrial Revolution, let's just say in California, were there wildfires that were this bad in 1776 and 1787? I am not qualified to answer that. I, I would Probably. imagine we did have fires in um, that occurred naturally, right? Yeah. You get lightning and then those fires wouldn't be put out. And there were probably dry periods. Um, but I, I, I'm sure there's paleo people who know about that because they go and they dig into the soil and they look at the carbon, but I have no idea when that might have happened. Well, we'll just say that it's entirely possible. We'll just blame the, the Industrial Revolution. That seems to be the theme. Um, the Industrial Revolution, coal, and uh, the British. You can always blame the British. Well, you know, we shouldn't focus on the blame game. We should focus on what are the solutions that we're going to come up with, right? Certainly. Yes. I, that, I, think, I think that will be more that maybe we can get people on board better. If we yes, can. it'd be nicer to everyone. Yeah, go with the, the positive vibes instead of the doom and gloom, uh, quiet but, desperation. But But we have to be tough and we have to make changes. So you know, we can't just be nice and we, we should be nice to people, but we need to, you know, rally them and push them to do something that will, you know, mitigate this problem. Uh, politeness and professionalism in our pushiness. Yes, I think that's, yeah, three Ps. There you go. There's, there's the alliteration. Well, uh, Dr. Uma Bhatt, thank you very much for being on the show. Asante Sana. Um, it has been wonderful to have you, um, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Um, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you have been listening to 
91.5 FM KSUA, um, our college radio station here at UAF. And we've had uh, Dr. Uma on the show. Thank you uh, once again for being part of this. Thank you for having me. This was fun, George. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks. Take care. Okay, bye. You have been listening to Join the Conversation, our radio show and podcast on 91.5 FM KSUA, our college radio station here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I am your host, George Christopher Thomas, and I thank you for tuning in.